We'll start again with having someone read tonight is having Abraham read. Abraham's going to read to us um, from John chapter 16, the first seven verses. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. I just don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. And it's important to recognize every human being needs accountability. And so uh, this is part of that. So again, John chapter 16. Take a look at that too. And actually, um, go ahead and take it to verse 11 just so that we can get a full context of that if you would. Abraham, thank you. Okay. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You want to lead us in prayer, Abraham? Just while you're at it. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Nothing like putting you on the spot. <laughs> um, Lord, as we come to a place of receiving your word and listening, Lord, we pray that we listen and we receive. Um, we strip ourselves for a moment of time in the week, in the day, of our own, um, our own putting things together, our own rationale, our own selves, Lord, and we just come to a place where actually we just take it for what it is and we consider your word and its implications on our lives as we live moving forward. Have your way in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You have a <laughs> Yeah, that was beautiful. Hey, first of all, let me say it like I would any week. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume because I say it, it's true. It drives me crazy when I hear people that think they have some authority just because they're a fancy speaker or they have a microphone or whatever the case is. This is one of the reasons you're given that book. If that book were read and actually adhered to for what it says, it would actually hold every person in check and would not give people the leeway to do so many of the things that are clearly madness that the Bible clearly speaks against. Now let's put ourselves into the context of our, of our time here. And we probably won't be getting to verse 11, but... I just love hearing Abraham read, don't you? I just I should have had him read the whole chapter. Uh, anyways, in chapters 13 through 18, well, through 17, are a very intimate time where John, the guy who's writing this thing down, is recording this information for us, though the other three gospel writers have not done so. He is observing, he is leaning upon Jesus' breast at the betrayal that we call the Last Supper, temporarily the Last Supper. He is calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. But it is imperative to recognize that the biblical definition for love is actually one that is Well, it speaks of a selflessness, of a great deal of giving without really getting a return. And it's just hard to say such a word would be bragging. 
to say, yeah, Jesus sacrificed the most for me. I was more of a sacrifice. But he writes this information in a very intimate manner. And a matter of fact, you're not going to get this in the other Gospels. And this particular information is this bridge between this time of them having that Pesach, that Passover supper, and the time of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had washed his disciples' feet exclusive to the Gospel of John. And he knows that now before him is not just the reality of his execution, but the inevitability of it. He is now within hours of his rest. And with that, he is taking these guys, his disciples, and understand a disciple, we make such fancy terms of these things. Masitikos in the Greek, it just means students. Jesus has taken a batch of students who, by the way, traditional discipleship was not you sat with a book and a form and the kind of thing and you tick some boxes. You kind of followed the guy around and you lived with him. That's a lot more demanding of a discipler. And so they, I mean, in essence, Jesus became, in essence, a homeless guy uh, and the guys who followed him chose to do the same. They became homeless guys. They left their nets. They left their boats. They left their 401k. They left all of the things that may have been their identities, their occupations, to follow this guy around because they were convinced that this guy, this Jesus, was everything that the Old Testament had promised he was. Could you imagine sacrificing remotely that much to hang out with to follow any person today. To roam the streets like a madman telling them about some guy. And the reason I say that is I think we need to be fair to the lost world out there that looks at us and thinks we're lunatics. Because if we're going to be fair, let's just be honest. There's this guy and he lived thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away, that I have a personal relationship with. That doesn't sound normal, because it's not normal. And, and then, you know, let's just be honest. I mean, he, he loves me and I love him, but we're not really that way. But he's, he knows me by name and he speaks to me. That just does sound odd. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it does sound odd. And he went up into them I and he died on a cross to pay for all of my guilt and shame and all of your guilt and shame when you were on his mind and I was on his mind when he died on that cross. And that was the reason why he did it in the first place and then rose again, conquering death in the grave and then got sucked up into the sky and somewhere at any given moment he may reappear and suck me up like a hoover into the sky and I'm going to be with him forever. Now that does sound pretty darn mental. But it doesn't mean it's not true. When Noah had to tell people that rain was coming, they also thought he was mental for a very obvious reason. Water had never fallen from the sky before. So imagine people saying how unscientific that would be. How there was no earthly precedent for such a thing. And after over a hundred years of building a giant boat to create a floating zoo, which also sounds pretty darn weird, and in all of that, imagine that when the rain really did happen, in the end of it all, everybody agreed with him, even though in the beginning it really did sound like madness. Well, John's in this situation here where he's very intimate with this crew. He had given up everything to follow this guy. God in the flesh. And interestingly enough, think about the last time you had to go to an event that was ordained by time that was going to be an unpleasant event. Think about what that was for you. The dentist, a doctor's appointment. Maybe you just had to go out for coffee or tea with somebody that you just kind of know was weirding on you or you were weirded on them. Or just maybe it's someone that you love, but you just kind of know when they get home, it's going to have to be one of those talks. And you know, it's like that whole day, what do you think about? You think about yourself and the, um, the discomfort and the weirdness of all of that. But Jesus, on the other hand, is completely consumed with these guys. Here he is about to receive the most torturous of deaths, and it's staring him straight in the face. And all he can think about is the guys trying to make sure that they don't fall away. What a wild thought. 
So they have this sacrifice, this Passover meal that all speaks about the Lamb of God being sacrificed and the firstborn so a nation could go free for a people to be set free. And the whole thing's testifying of him. There's the Lamb of God telling the story because part of it is the seder or the story. And he has to tell them and reaccount the whole story of Exodus. What would it be like for, to be able to hear that story from the perspective of the burning bush? Wouldn't that be wild? Oh, yeah, I was there and I told this guy, take off your shoes. The sand's, you know, you could fry an egg on the sand, but I told him, take off your shoes. It's holy ground. And how weird that would be to hear that story from there. And here he is now knowing the whole thing is going to come to the crux of this whole thing, this juxtaposition at the cross. And as it's the case, he's looking at these guys. He's going, I need to warn you about something. And he says this, this is in the previous chapter. If you have your Bibles, look at it with me so you know. And again, I just don't want to pull a verse out and then kind of wax somewhere with it if it isn't in context because, you know. Anyways, look at chapter 15, verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you were not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, well, they'll persecute you. And if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all of these things they will do for my namesake because they have not known him who sent me. Now, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin in regards to this. But now they have no excuse for their sin. But he who hates my father, well, if he hates me, he hates my father also. And if I had not done the works, uh, which no one else had done, well, then they would have no sin. But now they have seen and they've both hated me and my father. But this has happened that it might be fulfilled what was spoken in their law. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. This is our context for the text we're looking at today. And in the simplest sense, nobody's he's saying is going, look at they've hated me, now it's your turn. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, by virtue of the term, it means Christ-like. You can't do Jesus better than Jesus. And if you think that somehow you're going to be everybody's buddy, you're going to be like everyone's essay man, everyone like loves you, but the people who hate Jesus love you, there's something probably a little bit wrong about that. If there was somebody out there and they were sworn to hate every American, now let's be honest, I can, I can play off not being American to some degree, but sooner or later you're just going to know it. It doesn't mean, I could try, hello, how are you, right? That's, that's nice. But sooner or later, they're going to know something in it. It's the food I eat or the amount that I eat of that food, or it's just the fact that I'm actually willing to crawl up into your grill and say, can I actually have some sugar, please? You know, whatever it is, somewhere in all of that, they're going to be like, you, you actually, I mean, something, something gives you away. You're not really from here, are you? You know, and it's like somewhere in it, you just really can't hide it. And it's, and, and, and it's not like you try to hide. You just want to kind of not be that weird of a door in front of everybody or whatever. But imagine if somebody really hated Americans, but they're like, but I love you. I'd think, wow, then maybe I'm not really, if they really, what they hate is what America stands for, which, by the way, that's its own conversation. Uh, well, then there would be something weird if I really wasn't. If there, was somebody, if there was a gal out there and she just hated every man, and she's like, death to all men, but somehow she loved me, I'd start to wonder about how masculine I was presenting myself. It only makes sense. And yet somehow in it, we think we can pull off Jesus better than Jesus pulled off Jesus. That sounds a little crazy to me. But here's the problem in all of this, and please don't miss this, is that Jesus isn't just saying this because what he really wants is for you to have a sense of dread while he's about to get executed, so let's all just have a kind of a bummed, groovy moment. So we all be like, oh, yeah, that really stinks. Yeah. Well, good, now that we're all bummed, I'm going to go die. You know, It's not the point. But what he is, is he's trying to, and I do love this, is that he's actually not giving us the weak cell. Some of you have actually had that. You know, I mean, we, have the, we do a bit of traveling, and lately we've had to do a bit more than normal. And you know what it's like? They're like, you know what, you can fly to this country, and it'll cost you £4.50, right? And then, of course, you actually go online, and they're like, oh, £4.50 was actually just 
you know, like a water that we're going to sell you on a whole side, you know, on the on the flight. But actually, what we really meant was four thousand five hundred pounds. You know, and it's like they get you in with something, and then of course they're like, well, actually, that's not a flight at all. That's actually just the you know, that's the bus there to get you to the airport. And the reason I say that is it's amazing how many times you kind of they kind of give you this light sell, and then you get there and you realize, dude, this is a lot worse than I thought it was. You go in and you go look for shoes. And let's just be honest, right? If you're a bigger guy, you know, and all shoes, they don't show you shoes in your size because shoes in our size look like a barge. But they show you shoes for like an infant because they're all cute when they're small, right? And then like, oh, yeah, we have this and it's on sale. And then you go in and they're like, well, okay, this is my size. And then they go, oh, we'll be right back. And they come back and they're like, oh, we don't have that size. We have two sizes smaller, though. Like they have to tell you that. And you're like, oh, funny, because my toes all fell off while you were going to look. So it fits. You know, it's just weird how things get baited. And the reason I say that is, is that a lot of what's called Christianity out there, and I'm not trying to diss all things, but I want to be able to be clear here, really plays this soft sell game. It's like Jesus is like this big, like he's like Barney. You know, he's not purple, you know, and he's just like, I love you and you love me. And as long as we hug, it's like a life improvement program. And Jesus will like put on the butler outfit and you just kind of ring a bell and he shows up and he's like, this is what I want for this day, Jesus. And as long as I say in Jesus name, now you're obligated to do it. And somewhere in it, it's like, if that's what Christianity is, nothing looks like Jesus from all of that. And then what happens? Somebody actually looks at you and they give you a cross look or they kind of look at you like you're a dork because, well, you're kind of weird because you believe all that stuff we talked about and, and then we're like oh, i don't understand my feelings are hurt and oh man it really stinks right then nobody told me this was going to happen let's be honest if there's any person at all you're going to be a friend with chances are someone else isn't going to like you for it and if you're actually friends with a world changer someone is definitely not going to like you for that even if that world changer is a nice world changer, somewhere down the line, if you were a friend with all the Avengers, they have enemies. I mean, the bottom line is it doesn't matter who it is you're going to buddy up with. Someone else out there is like, I want them dead. Somebody's not going to like you for it. The question is, is the relationship worth it or not? Because in the end of it all, no matter what relationship you choose to cling to, it's going to involve sacrifice, and some of it's going to be social. We should, by the way... If you get older, somewhere down the line, that should kind of be a no-brainer after a while. But notice what Jesus says, and I should get to the text if we're ever going to you know, actually get into it. But notice in verse 1, his whole purpose behind this. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that you would not be made to stumble. In other words, he goes, let me just make clear why I'm even telling you that people are going to hate you. Because I don't want you stumbling. Now, the word is, and this is one of those words you may actually recognize because there's an English word that comes from it. The word is scandalon. Try that word. There's, there's a little Greek word. Scandalon. Try it. Because, you know, all words come from Greek words. Right? Scandalon, or scandalizo, comes from a word which is skados, which, by the way, means to dig. But it's initially, it's the trap stick is the easiest way to use it. What word do we get from scandalon? Scandal. It's where the word comes from. Now, here's the idea, is that there are different kinds of traps. That should be a no-brainer. And as there are different kinds of traps, something's going to trip that trap so the trap trips. Yeah, sorry, I think I said that right. Now, consider this. I don't know where your mind goes. My first thought is one of those big old nasty bear things, right? It's like giant teeth, and it's open like this, and you step in and it goes, right? Those are actually invented in the 1500s. I'm actually impressed that we got it that early. Actually, it was invented over here, by the way. Actually, I think a little east of here. Nonetheless. Now, there's the mousetrap, which, by the way, for what it's worth, was invented south of Chicago in right before 1900s. That's not also what they're speaking of. Obviously, that's way later than this. So what kind of traps are we talking about? Well, there's three basic kinds of traps during the Roman period. So follow me on this for a moment. Let's just have a history of traps. The first simple kind of trap, by the way, is a luring trap. Now, a luring trap, by the way, always requires people. Traditionally, each one comes for a different purpose. This particular one, you actually don't want to kill the animal. So the Romans had to trap certain animals so they could be brought in, excuse me, they could be transported for, to the Colosseum for the gladiator fights. And for the, you know, they'd have them fight each other and people would take bets. You know, or they'd have them, they'd tie, they'd have these things, which we used to do here, by the way, in the 1600s, called bear baiting. Have you heard these things? They'd take a bear and they'd wrap them around with raw meat and stuff, and then they'd let loose a pack of wild animals, and then they'd take bets on whether the bear would win or whether the animals would win. There's one right next to, to the globe, by the way. Anyways, for what it's worth, bear baiting. 
They were so they had you had to keep the animal alive because he had to be in pretty good shape by the time he was going to hit you know the stage for you to bet on. So in such a case, what they would do is, and it was always the Roman soldiers in this case, is that they would kind of come and they'd come with these sticks with meat on them, and then they would kind of come in, and then they would try to, there were two different ways, but basically at the end of it all, they would come in a big batch of them, so they would try to tire out the predator. So they'd be like, I'm meat, take me on meat. And as, as, as he'd start coming this way, another guy, hey, so am I, right? And after a while, he'd kind of get tired, and then ultimately they'd throw a, a net or a cage on him, it all depends if we're talking a lion or something smaller, like a leopard. Now, in such a case, understand, it is to trap so that you can be sport later on. Does that make sense? In essence, it's to trap for the future entertainment. In which case, by the way, this cannot be the case because the scandal doesn't play out in something like that. There's no trip, if that makes sense. So that's not our term. Okay, and then there's a second one, and some of us are familiar with that. That's a pit. Right? And then what they do is they dig a pit, which, by the way, does fit for a scandal because the word comes from to dig. And from that, then they cover it up so it looks like floor. And then ultimately, this is something that uh, in such a case, by the way, you do trap to kill. So, in, because it's a dangerous thing, so the idea of it is you put it in a much smaller space and then it's like shooting fish in a barrel or however they say that. That's kind of the idea. So, in such a case, by the way, there still has to be some kind of lure, but you're not personally luring it. So they put something in the middle that looks yummy and tasty and the animal goes, oh, look at that. That's probably not a problem. That's just raw meat waiting for me. And they walk over and fall into the pit. And of course, they're stuck. That is, by the way, one of these options. The third, by the way, is called a sling and fling. Some of you have heard of that. Usually they bend a tree. And when they bend a tree or something like that, they trap it and then they put something on there. But the animal has to be good enough to bite through that so that what happens is it ultimately catches them, usually by the paw or by the neck, and then flings them up. It is actually, in the third case, the intent is to stuff as a trophy. And that word clearly a scandalon is used because you have to trip it in order to fling it. Now, the reason I say that is, let's start with this. Jesus says, I'm warning you about this issue. People are going to hate you. You're going to have haters. Now, here is the problem, and we reviewed this again last week. You weren't created to be hated. You were actually created for fellowship. And this is the problem. This is why we get lonely, because we were created not to be alone. This is why we, we, we find this place where there's this appetite inside of us, and when somebody says they just want to be friends, or we kind of hope for something and it didn't happen, man, it really ruins our day. And part of it is because there's a part of us inside that's hungry, and it's actually showing up at the table, and there's nothing on the table now. And we get confused and frustrated and angry and we hate ourselves and we're like, how come they don't like me? Well, I don't like me then. And we just basically agree with them by the time we're done. And now imagine we're follow, we've left everything to follow Jesus and he turns and goes, I just want to warn you. People are going to hate you for this. Listen, if you don't want to be a Christian because you don't want to be hated, at least at least you've got a clear understanding of what it really means to follow Jesus. But here's the craziest part about this. What's clear and evident from our text is that the people who are going to hate you in this are actually religious people. Did you notice that? It isn't like unbelievers are kicking you out of a synagogue. I mean, people that aren't claiming to be God's people. I mean, the people who are going to kick you out of the church more than likely go there. So follow this on it. Walk me through this, if you would. And then we'll kind, of get, and we'll kind of get into the development of it. And this is why we're not getting to verse 11, of course. Let's put ourselves in that second one, the pit. You're an animal. You have no reason to believe anything is unsafe around you. And you start to walk. And as you're walking, somewhere down the line, you hear that snap. Now that snap means you know you're going to fall. And so you fall. And now the first thing you feel more than likely is kind of a, uh-oh. Let's just be honest. Uh-oh. And the ground drops from before you and it was nothing you had planned. And all of a sudden you're in that place where you're like, what just happened? You were blindsided because the floor gave in. And now you're down here and you're hurt. That fall is going to hurt you. And so you're just, at the moment, taking inventory of what's broken or what's not. 
So you go from like, uh uh-oh, to ouch. And then from there, you start to look around and you realize, wow, I'm in trouble. What you're looking at now is a space, and you try to get out, let's be honest, you try to get out, but the way that pits are designed, of course, they're dug straight down so you can't climb out. And usually made of a soft material so that when you try to grab, it just kind of caves and pulls you down. And somewhere down the line, you fight, and you fight harder, and you fight harder, and you fight harder, and the adrenaline's pumping, and you're like, come on! And you're trying, and it's so frustrating, right? And somewhere down the line, you're like, I'm stuck. I can't get out of this thing. I wish I had never walked today. I wish I'd never gone here. And you live in this place of regret. You just wait to die. Some of us, that's the story of our lives. It's an emotional situation. It's an addiction. It's just a series of bad choices we make over and over and over again. And we get that, uh uh-oh. And then we get that weightless moment before we know the floor is going to drop. And we are so tired of fighting and we're so tired of being in the pit. And we're so tired of feeling that confined and that limited, that trapped. Jesus goes, I'm saying this now because I don't want you ever to be there. Do you know? He doesn't want you ever in there. And the dangerous thing is he says, people hating you or your fear of people hating you, that's going to put you there. And I'm going to tell you this now. So when it happens, and by the way, in the text, notice, he doesn't say if it happens, it says when it happens. You'll remember I said this. So them hitting you isn't the trap. It's how you respond is the trap. Because they're going to hate you, and yet he doesn't want you tripped up. You get that. You ever been in a situation where somebody obviously was escalating to the place where it's probably going to get physical, And you had the choice, and you had the choice of escalating it or not escalating it. The younger we are, there's no choice. You're going to escalate. That's just the way that works. At least in my world, that's where I came from. And as you get older, things heal slower. Even when you win the fight, you lose the fight. We tell our children, the only fight you win is the one you're not in. And you realize, oh, I really should have made that different. Because it was your response. I'm sure this doesn't surprise you. People are jerks. Uh, By the way, you are one too, and so am I. Be warmed and filled. So someone comes up to you and they all jerk on you, and you're like, what? Come on. And you're like, no, actually, that's what happens. But at that moment, you decide whether you want to jerk back or not. That's where the trap is. So in essence, they put this thing in front of you and you're like, do you want to step? You want to step in this? You want to step? Come on, step. Come on. You a man? Step up. And in and down. And Jesus says, listen, I don't want you tripping. I don't want you falling. And I don't want you wishing this never happened. I don't want you in that place where like, you know, I shouldn't really have followed Jesus like this. Because man, if I, if I didn't follow Jesus like this, Maybe I could just be like most of the people out there that kind of, they're spiritual, which, you know what that means. I'm a free agent, right? I can just do what kind of whatever I want, and in the end of it all, I'm sure it'll all just work out. Jesus says, let me tell you what this looks like. Verse 2. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Now, you're aware of the fact, I'm sure, that the synagogue was a whole lot more than just church. It wasn't like they're just going to kick you out of the church and someone looks at you and goes, go find another church. And then you walk down the block, four houses down, there's another church. You're like, I'll just go to this one. Because here we had that for a while too. In this country, our churches were a place where we had all of our town meetings. Everything was actually happening in the church until we stuck pews in it because we didn't want people dancing in it. Well, we did. It wasn't our choice. We were way too young for that, even us. But ultimately, so then we started meeting in public houses. And you know what short 
for public house, right? It's a pub. That's what a pub is, is a public house. That's where we had those meetings, our town halls. All of our public meetings, all the people, whether we're gonna, what we're going to do about the lack of rain or the abundance of it, we did that at a public house. Well, consider how much society develops around that. To this day, there's still a great deal of society built around the pub society. Now, I think that's actually, to be honest, I think that's evolving into probably coffee house. If you're younger, if you're under 50, we just learned that we are silver surfers last night. Apparently, I didn't even know what that term was. Right? There's a quiz and we, you know, all of a sudden, you have to be over 50 and you're like, you actually know how to work a computer. You're called a silver server. I'm like, what? 50. We are so angry. We, uh, anyways. <laughs> the point is, is that it's probably going to move, you know, it's going to move to coffee houses, but because you can still be by yourself and it's still not as weird, you know, and that's something we like in our culture. But understand, in a synagogue, synagogus, by the word syn, like synergy or synthetic, means together. Gogos, by the way, means to assemble. So synagogue, by the way, is a Greek word, ironically. Uh, it means to assemble together. So it was the place where the Jewish community met. It was the place, by the way, where we talked about the rain and what we do with it and what we do without it. We made our decisions on those kind of things. So when you were kicked out of the synagogue, it was more than just go find yourself another church down the street. Go and Google it. You lost everything. You lost your community. You lost your family. You lost your job. No one's going to hire a guy that gets kicked out of a synagogue. You are more than just a heretic. And the irony of it, I hope you see this, is that quote-unquote God's leaders were, quote, were kicking out God's people out of God's house for speaking God's word. Don't you find that a little strange? I don't think that's actually that far from the truth today. If someone were to say, do you actually believe this book? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, which parts of it? I'm like, all of it. Now, my personality doesn't agree with parts of it. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means there's parts of it that are like, that's a lot harder than I'd like it to be. Or, well, I love my enemy. Well, yeah, no part of me says yay to that. And, And the reason I say that is, is that you start standing up and going, actually, this is still the case. People are like, oh, you're outdated and a dinosaur and you don't belong here. And you're like, you're probably right. But Jesus warned me of that. And he said, you're not of this world anyway. But I'd like you to consider something. Some of you are familiar with the book of Revelation. It's only one revelation. According to the book, it's a singular. Because it says the first verse should give the whole thing away. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you get past that, the rest of it should be a little easier. Look for him. But the first thing he does after he reveals himself in chapter 1 is he shows these, in essence, he does this sort of well-being checkup for seven different churches. And they're in an oval starting in Ephesus and working their way to Laodicea and the Lycus Valley. Now here's the point of it, is that the last of them, this Laodicea church, he actually speaks about them being not hot, nor cold, but lukewarm. And we can develop a whole lot of that in regards to uh, how that plays out into the three major cities into Lycus Valley, that's Colossae and Hierapolis, and, and how they were pumping in hot spring sulfur water because, you know, spas, we had them back then too, and how important that was. And how cold water, how nice that is to have too. And boy, you get the wrong one, it's not so cool, especially when it tastes like rotten eggs. And he says, I'll spit it on my mouth. And, and he goes, I, know, what kind of, I wish you were either. I mean, I'd love you to be full on for me, but if you were full on against me, at least it would be obvious to yourself where you're at. Like the most dangerous places, to be honest, is to have a real viral person that doesn't even realize they get cancer until they're in stage four. Because they're so busy overcoming everything their whole life, they don't actually treat the problem. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, by this point, you've got like a month to live. And he goes, that's kind of where you're at. Spiritually, I mean, you're at this place where it's like you're so busy fighting all of this and not being honest with yourself, you don't even realize the danger you're in. It is that church that he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, let's put this into perspective. This is Jesus speaking to a Christian church. And he is knocking at a door. Either, by logic, he's knocking from the inside out, which makes no sense, 
where he's locking, he's knocking from the outside of the church to want to go in. You realize the Laodicean church, the mamby-pamby, lukewarm, apathetic, ambivalent, we're all, we're cool with everyone, like a Coke commercial people. This is the one that kicked them out. The reason I say that is Jesus actually recognizes and he knows what it's like to be kicked out of church. Man, if Jesus showed up here, how many things would change? I mean, like literally physically just walked in. What would change? My prayer is very little to none. But if we were like, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here. And what in the world are we doing here? And we can have this place where it's like God just wants to grant you your, bring your wish list. And we'll sing a few songs and we'll lay up before God. And, and I think Jesus would show up at that place and go, I'm sorry, we don't have time for your lordship. We don't have time for you to tell us we need to die to ourselves. We're too busy telling you what we want. And I, I get the idea that Jesus is like in, in Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. Now look, at, here's the thing. I'm not going to barge in. God's a gentleman. And the same thing is the case with your heart. Now we use that as an evangelical uh, verse, although clearly it's more of a restorative verse in its context, but it does apply in both cases. The bottom line is God is not going to kick down the door. He has given you the chance to let him in because he gives you the dignity of choice. Love is not love without a choice. You force someone to marry you, there's no love involved in that. He's like, look, and I'm knocking. And you can give me a thousand reasons why you think it's not wise to open the door, but all I really want to do is come in and be with you and hang out with you and, and love you. And all the things you are craving are actually in abundance. And I possess them all. I am all of those things. And I'm knocking. And you could tell me all those reasons, or you could just let me in. But oddly enough, the, the, who he's speaking to are a group of people that are having church. And it's like, I'm knocking. You're so busy not being hot, not being cold. So in, essence, in other words, you're trying to be so much enough of a friend of the world so they don't get angry, but enough so you don't think you're going to go to hell. Somewhere in it, we're trying to keep everybody happy. Jesus goes, I want to warn you, they're going to hate you. And when someone does hate you, I don't want you falling in that pit. That's of course not the case. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, Hey, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, and cast out your name as evil. John has already told us in John 9 about the man, remember, that was born blind and received his sight, and they brought his parents in. They're like, so is this guy actually born blind or what? And his members, his parents are like, well, you better ask him. He's of age. Imagine having your parents bail on you like that. And the reason is, it says... They were afraid because it had already been announced that if anybody confessed Jesus, they had already be kicked out of the synagogue. In other words, that was already happening when Jesus said this. This was no news for them. And his parents, imagine your parents are like, well, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get kicked out of the country. I don't want to be that. So uh, you just better ask him. Now, follow me on this. Believe it or not, we're almost done here. When they do kick you out, of a synagogue in such a case. They go beyond that. They have to make a public declaration to let you know, don't hire little Shimei. We've declared him dead. When you were born, you were actually written in a book, the book of life. There's one in every community in Israel, traditionally. It actually is a place that's easy to trace your lineage, and that's sort of important because that also comes with land allotment, so you want to make sure you're from the right tribe. Because like Dan gets a Syria in the north, Judah gets a Syria in the south, and you want to make sure you're in the right place. This is one of the reasons we know this existed in Jesus' day, because Joseph, his stepfather, if you will, has to, I remind you, has to go down to Bethlehem because of a census. Obviously, you had to be able to chase your lineage for that. And they were able to chase the lineage and say, well, this guy's from the tribe of Judah, and he's actually Davidic. In other words, from King David, he needs to be down in Bethlehem. So they could chase that. So let's just play this thing out for a moment. And I'm going to pick on Shemar because he's right in front of me for a moment. And besides, Shemar is a good Hebrew name, Shemar. So Shemar is born, and they write down Shemar. They write him down as the son of Shemar ben. And what's your dad's name? Douglas. It doesn't get more less Hebrew than Douglas. Right? So Shema Ben Douglas. Right? And um mom and your mom's name is Mar Marlene, yes. There does that's this Marlene and Douglas. 
Yes. So you're the son of these people, and then they would chase their family lines, right? Now, the only thing that's usually recorded in there is your birth date, your death date, and the children you have. It's just that kind of thing. But what if Shamar was to do something so horrible, so wicked, that the very name of Shamar would make people shiver? They would say that the name of the wicked would rot. That's why most people aren't naming their sons Hitler, which is for a good reason, you know. Uh, and, and just the same, they would, take, they would take this wet rag and they would blot out his name. And what that would mean is, as far as we're concerned, he was never born here, he never grew here, he never matured here, he never made any friends here. Now, that's bad news under these circumstances, because therefore, it's like you're like the invisible man now. You're going, can I have a job? They're like, sorry, uh, you don't exist here, buddy. Go to the next town. That's kind of the, does that make sense? Now, that sounds like horrible news, except for one other verse where that same term is used, where it says that God would actually blot out your sin and guilt. Imagine what this would be like for God to look at you and go, Shamar, all that guilt and that filth and that stuff you hate about yourself and those regrets you possess, I'm going to take that I'm going to blot all that out as if it was never born, it never matured, it never made any friends in the land of Shamar. It doesn't exist anymore, it never did. That's the idea here. Isn't that awesome news? Now, back in our point on this, he says, they're going to kick you out of the synagogues, man. You need to know, people are going to just be like, mm. and we're not just talking about the people that are like, we're going to have a rave and we're all going to like get naked and do drugs. Well, obviously, let's not invite Abraham or Dennis. Who, you know, They're going to be party poopers. But we're talking about churches that are like, don't invite this guy because he's going to go, oh, the Bible says, and you know, and who wants that? But he says, let me just get you this. The time is coming where whoever kills you is actually thinking they're serving God. Now, the term for kill, or I'm sorry, the term for um, service is the term Letsiah. And Letsiah, by the way, is the same word that is used in Romans 12.1. Some of you are familiar with the verse. Which says, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your reasonable act of service or worship. It all depends on your version. Because that's the word. He goes, there are people who actually get this. There are people who are going to say, God, we'll do you a favor. We'll kill that close-minded bigot. Add your words there. Homophobe, hater, so forth. It's amazing how someone can hate you and then call you a hater. Anyways, with all of that said, he goes, you need to recognize you're going to, most of you, all but one of those guys are going to die horrible deaths and never back down on the name of Jesus. You know what that means? That that relationship with Jesus was more important than death itself, than the fear of it. Do you have anybody you're willing to die for? Hey, you know, I have a whole bunch of those people now. You know, it's like, you know, you get married and you're like, well, clearly, and let's be honest, dying for someone sometimes is harder than living for someone. Making that choice over and over and over again to put someone else before you, that is so unnatural. You die to yourself. And then it's your kids. And then it's your church. And you wake up and you have opportunities to be selfish over and over and over again. You're going, you know what? No, that is, nobody benefits from this. And understand, these people were given the freedom to walk away, to not be tortured to death. They were given the freedom to be like, you know what? We'll take it easy on you. You could go free. Just bail on this relationship thing. Just denounce the name of Jesus. And these people would be like, I'd rather die than do that. So imagine, because you could, I mean, pardon me for being crude, but let's just put it in our vernacular. You know, it's like saying to Dennis or to Adam, hey, you know what? You know, we'll let you go. Just call your wife a whore. There's no part of us that could do that. I'd rather die than live the rest of my life having said that. So there are relationships worth that with faulty people that are jerks like us. Prayerfully, the same would be in return. Because I want to warn you, they're going to do that because of me. And they're going to actually believe that this serves me. You know why they do this, verse 3? Because they really don't know me. And by the way, again, for those of you who are grammarians, there's active and passive. Active means you make the choice. Passive means it just happens to you. It's active. 
In other words, it isn't that they couldn't know him or I don't know what's happening. I'm just not knowing. They're making a conscious choice not to know someone. It's the phone call rings. You know, you get you look on your phone and you get that that, you know, okay, just want to warn you. It's this person calling and you're like, oh, and I've been told people do this and they just tuck it back in their pocket. Let it buzz away. Hey, the call's there. And Jesus would say, many are called, but few are chosen. You know who chooses? Who he chooses? Those who answer the call. He's like, you know, he's calling, saying, I've chosen you. And if you don't want to answer it, how could you be chosen? Now look at last thing on this, and we'll bring this around. Verse 4, he says, But these things I've told you that when the time comes, notice not just if, but when the time comes, you will remember that I told you these things. And I said these things. I didn't say them in the beginning when I was with you because in the beginning, Jesus has been running interference. Remember how many times the religious leaders want to ask the disciples a question to nail them and Jesus steps in and answers instead because he doesn't give them a chance to actually be stupid. Sometimes I wonder how many times he's had to do that with me. Sometimes I wonder why he hasn't. And I look at this and I realize he's like, but you know what? I just want to warn you now. I'm not going to be as clearly seen as I was before. But I do want you to know this. It's going to happen. So decide whether this relationship's worth it now, please. And by the way, every one of them is going to bail on him this night, I remind you. But every one of them is going to come back but one. Well, the one who was already isn't going to come back, someone who's already left to betray him. It isn't that he's like, you'll never make a mistake. But if you really resolve this, you'll come back. No matter how many misrepresentations and horrible politics and other things you've seen that have been completely opposite of Jesus, called Christianized things or Jesus-ish things, in the end of it all, you still got to make this choice. Because like it or not, you're going to have to deal with him and not the politic. And you can stand before him and go, I didn't like your people. I didn't like your churches. I didn't like your politics. I didn't like whatever. But in the end of it all, Jesus is like, that is not enough to say no to me. Hear me on this, because this is our point as he moves it to a, to a paradigmically, although it's clearly the same. In verse 5, he says, now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you are asking where you're going. But because I said to you these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I depart, then I'll send him to you. Now, here's the point in this, and I'll develop this more next week, but I want you to consider this. It's a propensity issue, and the propensity is to Jones is the term I use, but we'd say obsess. The propensity to obsess over the things we lose, over the things we gain. And let's be honest. When you're losing something, you're familiar with it, you have a history with it, you can see it, it's going. The things you gain often are things you don't see yet. So that takes great faith, that takes trust. I mean, why would I want to let go of something that I may even relatively like for something that I can't even see? Jesus would say, by the way, even in regards to new and old wine, he says, no one that tastes the new actually ever says this is better the first time around. He goes, look, I'm going away, but I'm sending a helper. And again, we'll develop that next week. But hear me on this. He goes, but the only thing you can think about is what's leaving. Hear me on this. The only thing you, you can see is what's leaving. And therefore, you have no excitement or hope for the future because you really can't see anything coming. So you just think, all I can see is what's leaving. And here is the point, because he put it in right after the world hating you. Do you get it? Because this is what the world sees when we, when we walk around with Jesus. What they see is what they would lose. I'm convinced the majority of the people who really don't want to believe in Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about that they just don't understand. Again, it's a conscious effort. It's a choice you make. I'm convinced that the major reason why, more than anything else, is they just don't believe it's a trade-up. They just, I mean, all they see is what they would lose. I can't sleep with my girlfriend anymore. I can't do drugs anymore. I can't hang out in the clubs anymore or whatever it is. And this is the only things I think are fun these are the only things that placate me and sedate me from the fact that I hate myself or whatever. And it's like, and this is all my stuff, man. In other words, what they see is the, go the gospel only means the cross, but it doesn't mean the resurrection. 
man, if all we have is the cross, we're pretty lame people. Matter of fact, Paul told us that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, man, if all there is is what we have in front of us, we're the most pitiful people on the planet. If really there's no resurrection. See what the resurrection says. There's a whole new life on the other side of it. So, somewhere down the line, Adam met Angel. Somewhere down the line, Angel met Adam. And somewhere down the line, Adam and Angel decided they were going to be married. When they decided they were going to be married, if they're going to be honest, they know it's two deaths and one resurrection. There's a single Adam and there's a single angel that have to die. Because bachelors and bachelorettes make terrible married people. This is why it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Because boys make terrible husbands. That's why Peter Pan is still single. But somewhere down the line in it, they have to decide, is it really worth it? Is it worth leaving what I know for what I really don't? I've never been married before. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to walk around with this ring on all the time or to call her my wife or call her my, call her my husband. But somewhere down the line in all that, Adam was convinced by the relationship he had with Angel it was worth it. And Angel was convinced because of the relationship she had with Adam, it was worth it. And they will fight for it. Now look at God's not asking you to join a politic. God's asking you to join a person, himself. He's inviting you to himself. And you can focus on what you lose. Or you can focus on what you gain. Now look at I'm not asking you to run into anything blindly, but I'm asking you to do this. Will you be mature enough to be honest and objective as you analyze the evidence before you? Because what you have in this room are miracles after miracles of resurrections. If you knew the person I was, and many of you, would tell you could tell your story too, some of you, by the way, it may not be you are killing nuns and so forth. Or, not that that was mine either. But just a little, let me make that clear. But, uh, but God took an empty, desperate person that may not have looked at on the outside and filled him and made him complete. For some of us, it'd be a little more obvious. I was a horribly, horribly violent, angry person who never spoke and never smiled. And if you go, I find that hard to believe. That only proves the point. That guy died. That was the part I left behind. That was the part when I said yes to Jesus that got buried and nailed to a cross and then buried. But the resurrection, this person you see now, is a tainted, but still a representative of what it means to have a new life. Now as we go to prayer, what Christianity has been sold you? An easy one? a life improvement program or a relationship that is worth being hated for. Because when haters hate, the only thing that's going to be left that's worth being hated for is the right relationship or real relationships. What else would you want to die for? So as we go to prayer, I'm asking for those of you who have made that claim of Jesus, for God to strengthen our back and resolve in our hearts this relationship's worth it. So that we're not, let me say it this way, that we could live trapless Christianity. How's that? But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, I don't have to convince you. Abraham read it in the beginning and that's where we'll go next week. It says when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict. He will convince. That's what the word means. Of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, that you need help. You need to be rescued. Righteousness, that God's offering that. Judgment, what happens if you say no? But today, the dignity is yours to choose. Hey, that's your choice. But are you tired of being in the pit? And yet, trying to present yourself as not being in the pit to everyone else, but you know you are. Because he's here to rescue you. And he's here to take that old person that you probably already don't like and let him die for good and put a new person there. A person that's free and alive 
and has joy and peace that you can't even imagine. And you can't get that from a politic. You can only get that from the inventor of human souls who knows how to take and make great things with nothing. Will you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. The challenges that are set before us in it, no, there are definitely challenges. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't kind of mamby-pamby soft sell something to us. Like we think it's just going to be this super easy-going walk through the lilies kind of thing. But that it really, really is a challenge. And I pray, God, for every person here who calls himself a Christian that is somehow trying to... I mean, we don't want people to hate us. We don't want to push someone's hand to hate us. But let us not live in that fear, that confinement, that regret. In other words... Keep us from ever snapping the scandal on. Ever. We don't want to be someone's kill and we certainly don't want to be someone's trophy. And we recognize a cross look, a nasty statement on Facebook, and our whole outlook on Christianity changes and the ministry that you call us to be to overcome now becomes really, really meek and meager. And that is so not it. So God, I just pray for every believer here that we would be willing today to say, God, you warned us. It was an if, not a, it wasn't an if, it was a when. Give us the wisdom, God, and the courage. But more than anything, let us resolve how important this relationship is and to make the relationship worth it as it should be. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed right now, if your heart's racing, it's probably reasonable. But today, you're tired of being in the pit. You're tired of fighting like this and losing. And you're tired of, keep, tired of just constantly falling back in and hearing that snap and feeling the ground fall from you. And you just, you're lonely and you're hurting and you're empty and you just, you, and you're angry. And frustrated and disappointed. today, our God loves you so much. Like a rugby player, he's just busting through all of that stuff to reveal that what he really wants is is you. Weak, frail, messed up, scarred, filthy. None of that scares him. None of it intimidates him. But he'd really love permission to come inside and give you that peace and hope and joy. And you have been given the dignity of that choice. You, you don't have to take a vote with a handful of other people. This is your choice to make. And today, if that's your choice, just pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I I come to you as I am. None of that surprises you. None of it scares you away. And I need you. I need your forgiveness for all my guilt and shame. And if this offer really does exist, to take this person and let him die, be buried, raise up a different, better person, one with you, well, then I say yes. i got to trust Jesus. You died on that cross for me just like Scripture promised. We're buried just like Scripture promised. He rose again. And it's that new life I want, which I can't get without letting go of the old one. So I hand you what I have, who I am. And I ask for you to set me free today and make me that new thing now. 
And for that to happen, Jesus, you're the boss. Make something beautiful of this, I pray. As I hand myself to you, Jesus, in your name, if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say amen. You've heard us today, Lord. You've heard our amens. And I just pray, Lord, for those that if there be anyone who the jury may still be out, that they would be willing to to objectively consider and continue to observe. Give them the wisdom, Lord, to be able to delineate the difference between politics and the, the muck that man makes of something and the beauty that you do. Whittle away every excuse and defense, even as you have with me. Till all that's left is that place of open arms and we come out with our hands up. So I commit that to you and I just pray now, Lord, for each of us. Prepare us for the outside world out there. That we'd have a joy that is so prevalent and contagious that even those who want to hate us have a hard time with it. Jesus, in your name we pray this. Amen. Hey, first of all, can I just say thank you for the privilege of being able to be in the Word with you. The honor of being your pastor. Let's We'll sing one last song and we'll dismiss today. If you've prayed that prayer today, if you have any questions, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. Uh, <clears throat> we'll do Gloria since we, you know, anyways. So, uh, let's stand and we'll sing one more song and dismiss.